When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Just a heads up, in this episode we discuss suicide, mental health diagnosis, drug usage, and substance usage. If those are potentially sensitive issues for you, I'd encourage you to check in with yourself and be mindful of where you're at as you make the choice of whether you want to listen to this episode. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 15. You know, the thing with suicide that I try to tell people is that sometimes it isn't so much a desire to die as you don't know how to live. You know, I didn't want to die, but I didn't know how to live. And if you can't live, what is your only recourse? Today on the podcast, we're talking about mental health. Uh, But before we dive into that, a couple weeks ago, I launched a Patreon page for the support of Chorology. And right now we're working on raising $300 a month so that we can release transcripts of every episode of Chorology. Uh, We're about halfway there right now. Uh, If you're interested in helping out, this will allow people who aren't physically able to listen to the podcast uh, to still be able to access the podcast. Uh, You can just head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support and it will take you right there. Uh, There are perks for different levels of donations that are all there. Uh, Pretty cool system. I'd love if you'd be able to help out with that project. Uh, Gabrielle O'Neill is a writer and artist. Uh, She's a professional fort builder, uh, an eternal student, an athlete, uh, and she's a mental health activist. Uh, Gabrielle has worked as a peer specialist for the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Wisconsin, as well as partnering with Mental Health America and the Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination. Uh, In addition to youth monitoring, uh, volunteering, and activism, Gabrielle believes that visibility and stigma reduction is at the forefront of her personal efforts in suicide prevention. Uh, By sharing her story, she wants people to feel less alone uh, and to feel a sense of hope. Uh, And I'm really excited to have her sharing her story on the podcast today. Uh, So let's go ahead and dive in. Gabby, hi. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. How are you, Matthias? I'm, I'm doing really well. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so to start, uh, how would you say that you identify? Uh, and then how has your faith helped form that identity? I identify as queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mostly because uh, it's the only term that I have found that makes sense to me mm-hmm. where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, thinking about your question about faith, um, I would say my faith has shaped my um, sexual identity and the way that I see myself. Um, I wouldn't say it necessarily helped, 
Um, I think right now I'm still in a space of uh, wrestling with um, certain tensions of Mm -hmm. how I was raised and how uh, I've come to see scripture Mm -hmm. and interpret scripture and hear from God Mm -hmm. with, you know, surrounding things of identity and sexual identity and who I am um, as a person of faith. So Mm -hmm. I think that it's shaped me to have honestly a lot of internalized homophobia Mm -hmm. and to have a lot of shame and stigma um, because I wanted to hold to how I had been raised and wanted to be God honoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, being taught that I couldn't honor God as a queer person. So so I think it, it shaped me in ways that were mostly um, negative. And so I would say that now there's been a reshaping effect mm-hmm. uh, that is in process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm always curious about like that sounds somewhat similar to my journey. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a question that always comes up for me then when I, when I hear that kind of story uh, would be like, why have you chosen to kind of hold on to your faith mm-hmm. when it has had such kind of a negative impact um, on your life? You know, I asked myself the same question. In yeah. fact, the other day <laughs> I was, I was driving and I was like, you know, why, why am I, a Christian? Like, why do I hold to that? Um, and I, I don't think that that's a question that I will stop asking myself for a while and it Mm -hmm. could persist, you know, over my lifetime. And, and I think a big reason is still fear. Mm. Um, who am I outside of this community, even a community that I admittedly was on the fringes of, you know, I loved to be the outsider, the rebel and, you know, in the Christian, uh, evangelical Christian space. Um, but even that was a belonging, Mm -hmm. you know, I know I belonged on the outer fringes. So I think that, um, if I'm being honest with myself, I think that I want to know where I belong. Mm -hmm. Um, as someone who's recently out, I don't necessarily feel that sense of belongingness in the queer community quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think my faith provides a type of certainty and um, and I'm trying to become more comfortable with the uncertain. Mm. And that's a process. But I do think I'm slowly starting to see myself um, that my, my faith isn't... Um, it's not uh, comprised of what it used to. Mm. So it's not necessarily um, the Bible as the ultimate authority and almost a deity unto itself, right. but it's more like who, um, what are these universal truths that um, I find present in the Bible, in, in the Godhead, in Jesus, mm-hmm. um, things like love and compassion and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I try to, incorporate that as my faith, mm. um, kind of a way, um, of following Christ in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the, that searching process of, of trying to reown mm-hmm. <laughs> everything we've been taught and mm-hmm. that can be hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So you do a lot of work around like suicide awareness, mm-hmm. um, working with teens and mm-hmm. with young adults and talking about suicide and um, mental health. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be really curious if you'd maybe be willing to share some of your story 
Uh, sure. And and maybe talk about. Let's start with sharing the story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I think that. Um, with a lot of things, people kind of come to advocate um, and be activists for certain things when it touches them personally. Yeah. And um, I have a uh, mental illness myself, mm. diagnosed with bipolar disorder and PTSD and um, an adult ADD, which, you know, is like the perfect storm, mm. <laughs> especially as an artist. It's like, mm. can't focus, can't. Um, and I think from a young age, um, things like suicidal ideation was, um, very normalized in my mind mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I was eight, nine, ten, Um, and, and so everything that was happening in my life was, was normal. And I thought that other kids experienced things like poverty and, um, suicidal ideation mm -hmm. and, um, uh, kind of a very, um, uncertain future. And, and so far as resources and security mm -hmm. were concerned because that's, that was my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't actually diagnosed until I was 19 after a, um, I had a, a kind of a mental breakdown that culminated in, um, hospitalization, mm -hmm. Um, and it's hard for me to speak of, uh, suicide without also speaking of, um, my mental illness because, um, I have bipolar too, and that's characterized by, uh, long, long stretches of, uh, major depressive episodes mm -hmm. and suicide is, um, very active, uh, component of that. Mm. And I think that there are certainly people who struggle with suicide based on circum, you know, circumstances and situational things, right. um, such as the death of a loved one or a divorce, mm -hmm. uh, and those types of things. Um, but there's also, um, quite, uh, quite a lot of suicide within the, uh, mental health community surrounding people who do have a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, when I try to imagine what life would be like without a mental illness, it's, I really can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, this has always kind of been my brain. Although before the manifestation of the illness, I remember myself being very different. Mm. Um, but of course I was a child and now I'm an, I'm an adult. So, um, as I try to kind of make sense, um, of what should be normal and mm. what should be alarming, I think that's also a process that a lot of people with mental, with a mental health diagnosis go through. Mm. Um, I was born to a single parent. Well, I had two parents, but, um, my mom was our primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. I have two sisters and two brothers mm. and we grew up, um, really below the poverty line. Um, and we, you know, but we never saw it, or at least I never saw it as a thing that was, um, to be ashamed of until we moved into uh, a community, a suburb of Milwaukee where people had money. Um, mm. You know, for us, public transportation, um, going to like the Salvation Army for a, for a meal mm. or whatever, it was just like part of the adventure. Right. Until we moved to the suburbs and then being on public transportation was an indication of poverty mm -hmm. because in the suburbs, people drive mm. walking was an indication of poverty because you don't have resources, um, mm. going to the food pantry and so on and so forth. Um, so I think 
that shame is a learned behavior. So there was a lot of shame around poverty, around uh, race issues, being the only brown kids in a, in a white um, affluent suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I think I never identified my feelings toward girls as queer. Mm. I always thought that they were just feelings. I didn't, you know, they didn't have any sexual or romantic overtones Mm. at 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like, hey, I love hanging out with guys because they get me. We Mm. play sports. We don't talk about feelings. We're aggressive. Um, These are my, this is my, you know, these are my dudes. Right, right. Girls, it's like this strange and weird creature that I don't get at all, (laughs) but I have strong feelings towards Equal parts distaste and uh, and interest, mm. um, but none of those things necessarily had a romantic or sexual connotation, mm-hmm. just intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that so much of my energy was focused on our home life, which our mom was very sick during our teenage years, spent a lot of time in the hospital trying to figure out how to get through day-to-day life, being teenagers, trying to take care of ourselves and and care about our sick mother mm. and on top of mental health issues, on top of substance abuse issues that I, um, that I had growing up. I think my queer identity, it just didn't have any space, um, mm. because there were other things that were more pressing, mm-hmm. making it through the day, right. figuring out what I was going to eat, staying alive. Um, I think in a lot of ways that's still the case, my queer identity, um, has to take a seat to me being a black woman in America because mm-hmm. there's no passing as anything but a black woman in America. Right. Um, and taking care of myself so that my mental illness doesn't kill me. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm still working to give my queer identity that part of me an equal, an equal part, you know, an equal um, say in my life. Um, but I think after my substance abuse really uh, interfered with any kind of mental, um, any kind of treatment that I would have had. Mm. Uh, I moved to New York City when I was 22. Um, I was a little bit of a wild kid. <laughs> um, definitely the outlier. I come from a, a family of basically rule followers, yeah. boring. Yeah. Mm. And, um, I was definitely a wild child, and being in the suburbs, graduating high school early, I went to a lot of college parties and really started drinking to outdo the boys. I'm not going to lie. You know, there'd there'd be some, you know, big burly farm dude that's like, oh, I can can beer bong four beers. I'm like, "Ah, I can beer bong five. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Do them up. Um, Dumb. And uh, I also started smoking cigarettes merely to skip out of youth group and smoke in the church parking lot to piss mm. people off. Like, yes. So I did a lot of dumb things just to have a giant FU to the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I moved to New York, um, I think that's when I really found myself in a lot of ways. It was the best education I could have ever had. Being able to see people of color and queer people and people who um, – felt free expressing themselves however that was Mm. um people in full costume you know it'd be like 8 30 on a tuesday morning you're like bro is there a convention in town no (laughs) just just you you you. great um and it was amazing Mm. um and i think that's when you know two things happened i i gave myself permission um to experience things but also that permission turned into 
um, into, I guess, uh, not being as disciplined, um, in other areas. So, Mm. um, but it was good to be able to explore things outside of a small town in the Midwest where I grew up Yeah, and having that exposure. Um, but my, my dad died when I was 21. And I think that that really kind of catapulted, um, my drug use into, um, high drive. And at the same time, I'm dealing with traumatic events. You know, if, if those things aren't processed, if they're not dealt with, if they're not addressed, Mm -hmm. um, they tend to be destructive and, Mm -hmm. um, didn't really deal with my dad's death and, um, also started, you know, I was kind of like, what the hell? I don't care anymore. Um, and started doing drugs that I always thought that I would never do because they were too dangerous, like, Mm. um, dropping acid, cocaine, um, Molly, Mm. uh, basically anything and everything I was down. Mm. Um, and so by the time I was 26, 27, I was, uh, using needles and, um, just not doing well, you know, wasted away. I I was weighed like 105 pounds and, um, clearly looked sick. Mm. And, uh, my mental health was also, um, in disrepair. Uh, I'd had a few hospitalizations and a few overdoses and a few suicide attempts in a span of probably like six years, Mm. um, right around the time that my dad died and, and on. Um, and it, it, it really, you know, the thing with suicide that I try to tell people, um, is that sometimes there, it isn't so much a desire to die, um, Mm. as you don't know how to live. You Mm. know, I didn't want to die, but I didn't know how to live. And if you can't live, what is your only recourse? Um, I didn't feel that I had the tools that I needed. Um, I didn't feel like I had the support and, and honestly, like I just didn't know how, you know, like some people say, well, what is there to know? You, you wake up, you get the things done that you need to. But, um, the thing with mental illness is, is it's almost like you are in a certain sense, depression like paralyzes you. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of that, having bipolar mania, um, strips away any inhibition and your, any impulse, any desire, you know, it's, it's almost like you just go for it. So, Mm -hmm. um, and, and so not having very rational judgment, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm still alive, but, um, I think the defining moment for me came down to, um, I had overdosed and, you know, I, I realized that I was dying and I think that, um, I was afraid, which is a weird reaction. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who, you, who thinks you want to die, mm-hmm. you would think that I would be relieved or, um, or happy, but I was afraid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and out of that fear, I think I just, I prayed and when mm. I regained consciousness the next day, um, because I lost consciousness after that, mm. but when I actually woke up the next day, that's when I was like, something, something has to happen. Um, and I, you know, because of that, I had to move back to Wisconsin and kind of start all over and mm-hmm. really strip down my life to, um, 
to to the bare essentials. Mm. What do I need to get through this day? And then to build from there. Um, and so I think a very key component to my mental health has been sobriety. Mm. Um, and And also I think being honest with myself about who I am and how I'm built and mm. how do I navigate in, in a world that maybe isn't built um, for someone like me, someone who is a person of color, who is queer and who has a mental illness. Right. Um, and then to reconcile myself to that reality and figure out a way through. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I'm sitting here. I, I There's like two different directions that I, that I feel like I'm, I might want to go. Um, mm-hmm. One is talking about that process of reconciling with yourself and, and kind of owning like, Oh, I am, I am a different person in this world than Mm. what this world is designed for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, I think listeners of this podcast can maybe identify with that in, in different ways of that, of having to own there are parts of myself that are different Mm -hmm. than how this world is designed. Um, So I'm curious about, about that. And now I'm blanking on what the other one was. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you mind if I answer that one? Yeah. And then you can kind of think back to your other question. Um, yeah. That knowing uh, that this world is not designed for someone like me is is crushing. Yeah. Um, and there have been times where I've, I think that's added to the wanting to just give up. Like, mm-hmm. bro, this is not made for me. I'm not meant to thrive in this environment and even like even in a in a heterosexual sense like you know when i am in largely queer um spaces it i'm blown away um with the thought that this is someone's reality every day all the time Mm. that you know heterosexuals this is their world and i'm i am blown away like wow what what must that be like you know what 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 is that um and so in similar ways when I am, um, for example, a hospital environment, um, when I was hospitalized for, um, not only for, um, substance abuse, but also I was on a dual unit. So it was addressing my mental illness and my substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, having a living in a space that operated around, um, problem solving, um, getting you equipped to, to go through the world, having safety measures and boundaries, um, there's also a sense of um, relief that you could, you didn't have to fight so hard to just exist. Mm. Um, and in similar ways, um, I, I think not having the right, if I don't have the right view of myself, it I'll be um, more much more frustrated than I need be. Mm. Um, and so when I look at myself, as a 31-year-old uh, with specific challenges, um, it it's not good for me to compare myself with my siblings mm. um, and to look at, you know, their careers and their um, assets, you know, that they're homeowners and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, because we are differently abled. We're differently equipped and designed. And um, so I think kind of applying this very, like, scathing honesty on myself Mm. um, because it's only going to be a detriment 
to me if I, um, if I try to lie to myself about where I am mm-hmm. and, and how I'm built mm. and, and knowing those. And, and essentially it's a thing of limitations. Right. And it sucks mm. and it's hard to admit I'm limited. Um, and I think, I think that's, I think that's a, a, the key to it is, is mm. knowing I'm limited and, and having the humility <laughs> to work within those limitations. Right. Yeah, because it sounds like you said like scathing honesty, mm-hmm. and um, but the, it sounds like an, an honesty without shame. It, like it, it doesn't seem like you're throwing yourself under the bus, but instead being like, "This is this is reality." Mm. Um, it sounds like a much more compassionate kind of honesty than a shaming honesty. Is am I hearing that right? Or it's that's the goal mm. that is the the um the desire mm-hmm. and that is a very that's still something i i really struggle with mm. um is having compassion for myself and with myself um and to be gentle because um it is very easy to especially me i have very high expectations for myself and i know what i'm capable of mm. you know i know my my talents and I know my skill set. And so I'm, I'm prone to being very exacting and demanding on myself. And Mm. so I try very hard to not have this honesty with a sense of shame, but to have, um, compassion, but to not let that go too far the other direction, Mm. because I don't want to sit in a, um, self-pitying indulgent space either where I then justify bad behavior or, Mm. um, things that are going to, that are indulgent, but are going to, um, harm me in the long run. Um, because those kinds of behaviors lead to addiction Mm. and and back to things that'll be harmful. So it's, uh, it's a, it's everyday thing that I constantly have to keep a check on kind of like, uh, my mobile banking app. I obsessively (laughs) check my checking account because I know I'm prone to, uh, mindless spending. Yeah. So I also have to really check in, um, check in with myself about my compassion and mm. my self care and my honesty. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm thinking about how a lot, a lot of what you mentioned of uh, suicidal ideation, drug use, mm-hmm. um, those are things that I think sometimes in the church can get thrown at queer people mm-hmm. as saying like it's because of your queerness that your life yeah. is like this. Yeah. And and I'm curious about like when people try to co-opt your story like that. How how do you work with that? Because I've heard that so many times of like people trying to use that as an excuse of like if only you followed Christ the right way, mm-hmm. none of this would be happening. Mhm. Um and that's not necessarily true. Not at all. No. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious if you would maybe talk about that a little bit so yeah so I largely my experience with speaking uh with with people um in the church setting particularly the church I grew up in has been like largely like hypothetical Mm -hmm. because I I don't disclose my mental um my mental health diagnosis often Mm -hmm. because of the stigma and because of the things you hear in church communities Mm -hmm. um that medication um, isn't 
needed or necessary, that it's a a matter of faith, Mm -hmm. um, an issue of prayer, that it's an issue of sin, perhaps. Um, All of these things that are largely damaging um, if taken seriously. And so I don't disclose often. And also being um, newly out within the last uh, 18 months, Mm -hmm. but also like in a very limited way, um, I haven't really been publicly out to my church family um, because there have been times over the years where, you know, we test people. You kind of want to see how safe are you and um, how would you react to this? And the things that I've heard, the like, it, it's it's funny too because it's like, have you like I'm thinking, have you guys ever had a conversation, an honest um, conversation with someone who is queer, who mm. you're not judging right mm. away, or feels safe enough to be honest? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who struggles with a mental health diagnosis mm. or someone who has a substance abuse issue without you wanting to project them mm. or you know, deliver them or convert them or um, put them into, plug them into some ministry so that you can have done your good deed. Like mm-hmm. there's, to me, there's always a feeling of I'm going to fix you mm-hmm. and not I want to know you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the whole like, oh, you know, your issues or, you know, you're queer because, you know, you messed up your life doing drugs and now you're not honoring God and this is why it blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that those things should be, um, all mashed up together, uh, as well as people who have experienced sexual abuse. I hear that all the time Mm -hmm. too. Like, Oh, you've experienced something traumatic and that's kind of made you this way. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, against God's design and that's why, and it's, it's very frustrating. Um, and so I tend to not want to engage in those conversations. Right. Um, but when I do, um, I don't see a correlation. I, like, for, I'm saying I don't think that me being bipolar hmm. has made me queer. Right. Um, or has informed my queerness. Hmm. Uh, I do think, though, that the reverse is true. I think that the uh, amount of um, duress, uh, the queer community is under mentally and emotionally and spiritually, um, the burden of the, of having to combat stigma, um, and homophobia and transphobia Mm. is, is heavy. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'm looking specifically at, um, higher risk demographic, LGBTQ youth are at such a high risk of suicide and self-harm because, it's you could get killed in yeah. some places in this country for being a trans youth. Right. Um, that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You could get the crap beaten out of you at a bar if you're a you know a woman who presents like a male. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's alarming. Mm-hmm. So not feeling safe, um, just being who you are. I think that's a huge uh, pressure mentally and emotionally. Um, and physically. So I think if, if, if anything, my queerness has, um, really exacerbated, um, things for me Mm. uh, mentally and Mm -hmm. aggravated my mental illness in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
because it adds another societal pressure mm-hmm. on top of already being stigma, mm-hmm. um, already mm-hmm. being like like we had talked about before. Like this world is not designed for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm cur- in thinking about for people who are listening. Um, who do have mental health diagnoses, who Mm -hmm. are struggling in some of these places of substance usage or suicidal ideation, um, who are are trying to grasp on to reality or life Mm -hmm. or um, what, what would you say to them as someone who's, who's walked this journey a little bit? Um, how do you talk to people who are looking for that reason to hold on? I think if I'm speaking to someone um, with a mental health diagnosis, um, a very, I think a key thing to that is acknowledgement and acceptance. Like I remember when I was first diagnosed, I was like, there's no way, there's Mm -hmm. no way I'm bipolar. Um, I'm not broken. I'm mm-hmm. not defective because of the stigma around it, that there's there's something wrong with you if you have a mental uh, health diagnosis. Um, so I think if I'm talking to someone, it's I'm going to ask, like, how honest are you with yourself? Um, and have you examined what you need mm-hmm. um, and how to get what you need and how to ask for what you need? I don't think there's any avoiding um, having to be vulnerable. When you have um, a mental health diagnosis in the way that I do and many others do, because we are limited in a system and in a world designed for people who are unlike us. And so um, there has to be an incredible amount of support um, there. And mm-hmm. and and for me, a, a big part of that has been um, learning how to ask for what I need and learning how to be vulnerable with people and knowing who to be vulnerable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on the mental health front, um, really knowing yourself, really knowing your needs, really knowing your triggers, knowing what environments will um, will put you in a, in a bad or harmful space mm-hmm. and what environments will contribute to your wellness, um, who will contribute to your wellness, mm-hmm. what types of uh, different um, treatments uh, do you need? Do you need medication plus talk therapy? Do you need um, something that's going to connect you to nature? Do you need to be more physically active? Do you need to um, work through art? Um, or do you need to be involved in volunteering mm-hmm. to advocate for yourself and for others? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of internal work, and I think that's one thing that we're not really encouraged to do in our society. Uh, mm-hmm. We're encouraged to produce, to make money, to acquire things and assets. Um, but this this uh, thing of self reflecting and really sitting um, with yourself and exploring uh, your your internal world and mm-hmm. discovering how to be your best authentic self in order to output good into the world is not something that's hugely um, uh, encouraged. And so I think um, that's what I would say to someone with a mental health diagnosis is you really have to do the internal work. Mm -hmm. And it's long, arduous, it's painful, 
it's frustrating, mm. um, but it's necessary. And the ability to be vulnerable with others uh, necessary. Mm. I would say with somebody um, dealing with substance abuse, um, you're not ever going to get sober until you want to get sober. Mm. I mean, I loved cocaine more than anything. Mm. Still do, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's recognizing that but is there something I desire more? Mm. And I think that thing that I desired more was I wanted to learn how to love my family um, in a way that was truly sacrificial and um, and life-giving. Mm. And, and that meant I had to take care of myself, but that meant that I had to stop doing things that were actively damaging and destructive to my body and my brain. Mm. Uh, and so my desire to love them well um, superseded that desire for, uh, cocaine. Uh, and it's difficult. It's not easy. Um, sacrificial love is not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for, so I think for someone with substance abuse, also like knowing, um, what you can do now mm. and, um, and starting there. Um, environment is huge. Mm. I tend to not hang out in bars or around people who use drugs, uh, because that's not, um, that doesn't reflect my needs, um, and desires for myself, right. uh, internally. I want to stay sober. So I'm mm-hmm. going to have my environment reflect that. Um, and I think also, um, for people who use drugs, like understanding what is the underlying root, mm-hmm. um, or, or cause for that desire. Some people, just like to um, have fun, and it is recreational. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, as myself, um, was very much attached to my creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote better. I was. I felt that I performed better as a musician. Um, I, I felt that I had an expanded consciousness, um, and I think that too. Like, um, or and there are some people who don't want to feel anything, mm-hmm. which also I came from that place. So. Mm-hmm. Again, doing that self-work, um, mining those emotions, processing them, um, and being patient and compassionate with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as a queer person, man, <laughs> <laughs> it's like all of those things compounded and then that's, you know, kind of like my queer identity. It's, it's all of those things, like mm-hmm. knowing myself, um, trying to not define myself by what, by my faith or defining myself by what I shouldn't be. Mm. Um, and since I'm still kind of grappling with what does it mean to be queer? Um, and am I 100% comfortable with Mm. that? Mm. Um, And I don't think you can accept others or love others or serve others, um, or advocate for others if you don't do that for yourself. Um, so a lot of my work is reducing self-stigma and internalized homophobia and um, learning to bless the goodness in, in me that I see and to mm-hmm. cultivate that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned how your faith had a more negative impact in growing up mm-hmm. uh, and some shifting that's happening. Um, what would you say or would you say that your faith has moved into more positive directions and what has that kind of looked like in this journey? I never imagined a God could exist that would, who would want 
who would want me as I am. Mm. Um, I always thought that I served a God who desired me to be a certain way and that with his help, he would make me into that person, mm. but that I wasn't um, good or loved or enough as I was. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of what we're told. You're a sinner. Um, there's nothing good in you. You know, your righteousness is as filthy rags, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and to an extent, I think I still believe that, but mm-hmm. as someone who never imagined that I could marry a woman and that be honoring, um, to God, it, or that could be a reflection of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I think trying to reimagine a God who says, I created you as you are, Mm. and I love you as you are, Mm. and I want good things for you. Um, One of those good things being marriage and an intimate partnership Mm -hmm. uh, and a family. And I want to see um, my love amplified and reflected in your union. I mean, I, I don't even know if to imagine a God like that. Mm. Um, and I think a big part of my faith journey right now is discovering that God. Mm. And, um, often I think, um, I think Christians create the God they want to serve. Um, and because in my head, you can't say God is love and then, tell me as a queer person to not love Hmm. or that I'm not, uh, I don't have access to, um, to a union that many times is, is exemplified as the greatest, uh, portrayal of intimacy, um, which I would, you know, and I also think people who are like, well, you know, uh, uh, friendship love is, is just as intimate. And I'm like, yeah, but you're saying that from somebody who's married, like, don't tell me how great the thing is that I'm, you know, able to access. Right. And while well, you have it all. Right. Um, so I think a big part of it is is just discovering who is God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, apart from a very um, specific lens that I've always seen him through, and that is through this like literal translation of the Bible. Right. Um, and a very specific uh, tradition, Baptist tradition. Um, and right now my only faith is I'm seeking God. Mm. That is the, that is how I define my faith right now Mm. is I'm seeking God. I don't know that I would necessarily say, um, I do say I'm a Christian just as a, like a more broader, like uh, frame of reference, but I think I am seeking God and I, and, and that kind of is the staying force i think behind my faith i think that's a really beautiful place to be because it it it, in talking about honesty earlier it feels like a really honest place to be of like Mm -hmm. i it kind of admitting like i don't really know but i'm still searching right Mm. right and it's it's scary because Mm. we've been told like what to think, or at least we've been presented with um, so-called evidence. Like, but and that's the evidence that you're allowed to determine if there's a God based on like 
you know, the evidence of the Bible. Um, and I think trying to step outside of that, like, okay, what if there was no Bible? Hmm. Um, would I, so yeah, I asked myself this question a couple weeks ago, like, what if there was no Bible? What would my, who or what would I think God was? Hmm. And, and I immediately knew I would think, I would know that God, if there was a God outside of any, um, any literature assembled would be the goodness that I saw in people. It would be the beauty that I see in the world. It would be, um, that moment where your breath is taken away when you're at the symphony and you're just overwhelmed by, um, by how exquisite it is. It's, um, when you see a child being born or, um, or when you see, like, if you're, a super nerd and you're huge mm-hmm. into like cells and biology and mm-hmm. you see the wonder, um, of galaxies. I, I think it's compassion. I think it's, you, you know, so, and mm-hmm. these are universal things. Right. There are people who have never heard Jesus Christ, but, but know, um, the, the beauty and the magic of a smile, mm-hmm. um, or of a touch when needed, mm-hmm. um, or when someone cries with you. And I think, um, to cultivate those things that has to be the God in them, you know? Um, Mm. and, and I don't need a group of scholars to tell me that those things should be cultivated. I don't need a book to tell me that I should seek to grow compassion in myself and others that I Mm. should seek to be gentle, um, and, and wise and that I should cultivate, um, the care and, uh, the the perpetuation of this planet and our people mm-hmm. um it's simple i think i think it's a little more simple than um sometimes we make it out to be yeah. but um yeah yeah mm. amen <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh gabby thank you yeah so much for joining me today um yeah, this has been wonderful. Yeah, I had a great time. You have such a good, like, radio voice. So <laughs> cool and sexy. Thank you. <laughs> welcome. Uh, you can find Gabby over on Twitter and Instagram at Poets Flow, at P O E T S F L O W. Uh, Chorology is on Twitter at Chorology Pod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from listeners just like you. Uh, to find out how you can support Chorology, just head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. really good way to support Chorology is by leaving a review. Uh, I made that easy for you. Just head to MatthiasRoberts.com review. It'll take you over to iTunes. You can leave a little review. It takes like 20 seconds. Super easy. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of who you'd like to hear on the podcast, or if you just want to reach out, say hi. Find me Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anywhere. Uh, I'll get back to you. And until next week, we'll talk to you all later. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.